Let's rock and roll. Well, hey, I would like to welcome a very special guest. Uh, he is a craft beer pioneer. Could we say that? Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. A Cleveland Business Hall of Famer. That's without debate. You can go check the Hall of Fame right there. The godfather of craft beer in Ohio. And the reason for my slight hangover earlier this weekend, I got my guy, co-founder of Great Lakes Brewing Company, Pat Conway here. Pat, thank you so much for coming on, man. Thanks for the invite. You know, uh, walking through the uh, rainy streets of Cleveland certainly beats uh, snowy streets of Cleveland. So. And, and I'll tell you what, either if it's snow, if it's rain, if it's beautiful, no matter what the temperature is, that day is always heightened by a Great Lakes beer, I would say. I can't uh, agree more. I think it's <laughs> perfect. You know. We have beer for every occasion. Beer for every occasion. Uh, you know, we're going to talk about the beer history of Cleveland, the beer history of Great Lakes Brewing Company, the whole deal. But I thought we would start off, I want to know what your first beer was. Or when, do you remember your first beer? Do you mean um, uh, at Great no. Lakes Brewing? No, ever just... for you. I Whether think... that was 21, I'm assuming it had to have been 20. No, probably, yeah. was it 18, was the drinking age 18? For 3.2, right? Yeah. yeah. I yeah. think probably a Stroh's. Stroh's? You know, and then uh, they had a product, I'm not even sure if it's still on the planet, but it was called Colt 45. Oh, Colt 45s <laughs> are still around. Yeah, I think they only make them in 40s now. That, oh, is that? that yeah. <laughs> Ouch. Not, not that I would ever really know, <laughs> but, you know, I, I live next to kind of a, you know, uh, uh, I live next to a gas station. I see them in there once in a while, and I, I've never had the delight of a Colt 45. Yeah, well, it's, um, it's a, a little bit unusual compared to what we're doing today. Well, uh, well especially what you're probably used to, you know, some, some of the best beers um, in not only in Northeast Ohio, but the Great Lakes area and, and beyond award-winning beers with, with Great Lakes Brewing Company. Um, you know, starting back in, you know, not, you, you guys started back in 1988. I believe you start, first started brewing the process in 1986. But lead me up what led to starting this. Because, I mean, now, I mean, there's craft breweries all over the place. It's not a, I mean, you could brew beer in your basement if you want to and people you know of course do that but back in that day that was not necessarily it wasn't a thing i mean especially here in ohio because you guys were the first craft brewery what what led you to this concept and making that jump of wanting to um get into the craft brewery game well i think it really started when i uh went to Loyola university in chicago and they had a school in europe uh so a year abroad uh, it was in rome and not that Rome is the hotbed of beer consumption, because yeah. it's pretty much still, even today, a, a pretty much a wine culture. But going north over the Alps and visiting Germany and back then Czechoslovakia and Belgium, England, and of course uh, our stop to see family in Ireland, uh, I fell in love with those more fresh, lusty, full-bodied kind of flavors. And I, I, I used to think, um, why do we have this? now tasting aggressively carbonated light beers in the United States. Why don't why can't we have this kind of uh, more flavorable product? And um, came back to the United States and then uh, was in graduate school. I was bartending at night in Chicago, and um, I was selling a lot of Ga Ga uh, Guinness and Bass and Heineken and Carlsberg and and I was like, boy, a lot you of know, European beers. Yeah, yeah. And so it, it suggested to me there's now. Um, budding a change in the American palate. You know, there are people who are more well-read and more well-traveled and they're experiencing products uh, from different parts of the world. And so um, I um, thought, you know, why not um, explore getting into this and be in the forefront of this movement? Because, you know, like I was telling Marissa, you know, we are, as a culture, going through what we call the terminal case of the blands. Everything was boring, you yeah. know. You know, um, light, aggressively carbonated beer, jug wine, uh, Wonder Bread. Uh, so it was all just very kind of generic, and it wasn't right. a lot of the same. Yeah. And it wasn't, and it was also brewed for the masses. Right, and um, actually, the brewery industry took their cue from uh, vineyards out in California. They had won awards in Europe for their products, and so these boutique uh, uh, vineyards start to spring up, and. Uh, Pretty soon it went into beer, and then coffees, and teas, and candies, and breads, and, and here we are now, decades later, and I think 
our whole culture benefited from this movement because I think it's far more interesting uh, products out in the market than sure. there ever was before. Like kind of that artisan approach. Yeah, right. Sure, and, and you guys were, were doing this as well. You know, not only were you getting into a industry that wasn't necessarily a thing. I mean, at the time in 1986, 19, or the mid-80s, it was probably, what, Samuel Adams that was considered a craft beer in Sierra Nevada? Sierra Nevada, right. And were those really the only two at the time? Anchor. Anchor. Anchor Steam out of San Francisco, which closed its door a couple of months ago. Uh, to the chagrin of everyone, because it was one of the pioneers of the craft beer industry. But um, but when I decided to move back to Cleveland from Chicago, my wife was from Chicago, but we uh, made a, uh, a point to say, let's move back to Cleveland. And um, I was telling my brother Dan, who had gone to uh, John Carroll, but he also went to Loyola's school in Europe for a year. Yeah. So when I was telling him about this project, he said it sounds fascinating. He said, so if you need me to help you with your business plan, he was working at a bank here in Cleveland as a loan officer. And so uh, he... Oh, that's a pretty good guy to know to start a business. That's right. <laughs> so we sat down and went over it and over it. And then finally, Dan decided to, uh, to leave the bank and become partners. And so um, uh, it, it was a, it's been a great relationship over the years. We disagree on things now and then, but I think our core principles align. So yeah. That's important. How do you continue? And as I'm talking, I'm going to bring that just a touch closer to my mouth. Um, the, how, how do you continue that? Were you nervous getting in, in business with, with your brother? I think I'd be nervous of getting into business with my brother because not only, I mean, it's just we get along. He's my best friend. He's my best man at my wedding. But it was, I think there's a difference between a partnership of business, but then when you're adding that to family like I can talk to my brother way different than I could talk to one of my my one of my coworkers. you know I've, I've gotten into fights with my brothers little physical fights you know but yeah. and that is what you know that's a brotherly relationship but you can't bring that into the business world how have you guys been able to manage uh, the brother relationship but then also the business partner relationship and and have it thrive into a great company well, I know that Dan and I are both uh, two of nine children of our parents, um, whose parents all came from Ireland, and um, we've been very close as a family, close-knit family, and uh, now our, our wives and our children are all see each other frequently throughout the year, where there's family reunions, uh, we vacation together, so it's always been um, a relationship that's been warm and familial and it's uh, something that um, is unique because a, a lot of times people say don't go into business with family yeah. but um, this relationship has worked out great and um, like I said a couple minutes ago we just started uh, 24 2024 on a high note we had a great fourth quarter last year and so hopefully some of those post-COVID days are behind us you know our company really Took it on the chin during COVID because bars and restaurants closed. That yeah. meant our business disappeared. Yeah. Um, good news is that uh, people were buying six packs at Heinen's and Gina going going home and, par and and entertaining at home. So we benefited from that. But overall, it, it was. A, I definitely added rough. to the bottom line on that one yeah. for sure. There, I mean, there was nothing to do it during COVID. That's right. That's right. <laughs> It's like, oh, uh, 2 p.m., oh, I think it's time to crack one right now. But, you know, so we're talking that, you know, pioneer of craft beer, getting into this, taking the, the leap of faith into really an undiscovered, um, uh, you know, career path or industry here, at least in the United States. But then also uh, uh, taking another leap of faith, too, in Cleveland. I mean, this is the mid-'80s. There wasn't a lot going on here in, in Cleveland and you guys decide to not only set up shop in Cleveland, but in a, at the time, very undesirable neighborhood, Ohio City. And now, I mean, it's, it's hard to, it's weird that coming out of my mouth because it's one of the most desirable cities or uh, areas and neighborhoods in Northeast Ohio. Did people think you were crazy of like, oh, Pat and Dan are starting a beer company and they're gonna end up in, <laughs> they're, they're doing it in, in Ohio City where it's uh, pretty run down and a little rough. Well, I would say that we had that blind, obsessive, entrepreneurial mindset where, like, we're going to do this, and we're going to do it right. And we, I, I have a cousin who was a homicide policeman in Cleveland, and he said, 
I know where the drug lords are, I know where the homicides are, the prostitution, the murder. He said, don't, don't go there. That's, that's a recipe for disaster. And so now when I see him at weddings and funerals, he goes, how did you guys do that? <laughs> but um, it's, it was a moribund part of the city. It was, uh, fortunately, we had strong anchors with St. Ignatius to the west and the west side market to the east. So uh, those were great institutions that have been around for over 100 years. And so uh, we, uh, those were two strong bookends, uh, and we occupied the middle ground there. And what we really loved about it was the nothing conjures up the romance of brewing days past like red brick buildings. And sure. Our buildings that we occupied, they were boarded up. And um, we said to the landlord, we'd like to start this concept in your building uh, because uh, you could see through some of the cracks in the boards above the windows that there's a stunningly beautiful tiger mahogany bar. And it was just reeked with uh, history. And we thought, this, this has got to be our address. And um, we talked to the landlord. And he said, I'm not going to uh, open the doors up. I'm going to wait till the neighborhood changes. And then I'm going to flip this property. And we were like, yeah, but um, Peter, Peter, the neighborhood's not going to change in, until we become the catalyst for the change. Yeah. And so he reluctantly leased us the building with two five-year options. And um, somewhere toward the end of the first five years, um, he went bankrupt. Oh. So we bought all the property at the sheriff's sale. Wow. And that is what is now the brew pub right. at, at Great Lakes. And what, what's interesting, too, is that I, you could just sense that history you can sense it now walking in there but you could sense it back then because it was a it was from conversation that we've had prior it, it was a um a prohibition bar right or it was in, important around the pro prohibition well rumors are that elliot ness actually used to drink there yeah. um he was a lot of political a lot of judges uh, found that as a popular watering hole um there's a couple bullet holes scattered around the bar and um some people have associated it with Ness, but my mom, who was his stenographer, interesting junior stenographer, she said Ness never carried a gun. So she said, I doubt if there, that there's truth to that tale. But um, um, but a lot of those bars um, operated during Prohibition. In fact, uh, New York City itself had 5,000 speakeasies during the Prohibition. Wow. <laughs> so, so the um, the uh, the initiative was really ridiculous. And it really went quite the opposite way. Yeah. <laughs> well, it encouraged a lot of um, uh, thugs and underworld folks getting into the business and um, occupying um, spirits, you know, not just beer, but bourbon and whiskeys and a lot of uh, craziness. They called it the noble experiment, but I think in hindsight, everyone realized how crazy that was. It really was counterproductive because the government by closing down breweries and and spirits uh, establishments, uh, they lost a lot of um, you know, people from employed being employed, and also they lost a lot of taxes. Yeah. So when they repealed prohibition in 1933, you know, after 13 years of this noble experiment, uh, they realized that um, they needed to bring these industries back for cash. Yeah. Because the depression had knocked a lot of businesses out of out of business, and so they needed uh, cash and and this is this was the uh, the rationale behind the change of pro to to, to uh, end prohibition. It wasn't so much people being enlightened; it was a dollar and cents issue. Yeah, and it, I mean, yeah, as you say, the, the noble experiment. But there's there's so many things that just obviously are just right in your face. That I mean, first off, just even from a health standpoint, you took regulation away. It's like they they think that people were just all of a sudden going to going to stop drinking and then obviously then what you're talking about is the economic standpoint as well but you know Cleveland was really a city that was built on beer and breweries and at that mm -hmm. time there was I mean it, by the time that prohibition came around over I mean over 30 breweries. 30 breweries. 30 yeah. breweries, yeah. 30 breweries. I mean talk to me about just how important the the role that beer played in this city and the you know in in, in the economy of the early economy uh, of beer and, uh, and of Cleveland and the foundation of Cleveland. Well, the very first uh, settler and, and tavern owner in Cleveland was uh, Lorenzo Carter in 1802, and he brought his family to the shores of uh, Lake Erie and Cuyahoga River. Uh, they were the only um, white uh, 
people um, in the area was mostly Native Ameri uh, American uh, uh, occupying uh, uh, settlements around the river. Yeah. But by um, 1950, about 30 breweries uh, and all the breweries started out as um, ales porters and stouts because our founding fathers are, were Anglo-Saxons from Connecticut who in turn had come from Britain and so everyone was drinking ales porters and stouts but then with the huge immigration of German population in uh, 19, 1850 uh, people leaving Germany for uh, uh, economic and political um, reasons came to Cleveland because of um, industry was starting to boom and um, what a ready-made um, thing for the uh, industry to have all these uh, immigrants come to be the workforce. But when the Germans came, they wanted uh, their lagers. Yeah. And so by the turn around 1890, there was no ales, porters, and stouts left. Everything was lagers because really? it was an important part of the German culture. They needed that lager beers for their Sunday afternoons because back then everyone worked uh, pretty much six days a week, 15 hours a day, and so Sunday was the day of rest, and the Germans loved their beer gardens, and it was not just beer and food, it was poetry readings, it was bowling, it was ballet, it was um, book clubs, it was pretty stunning. Now the Irish, <laughs> as a culture, didn't have that same kind of um, broad vision of, uh, of, of, of the... Uh, of the arts of the culture yeah it was they going to the bar just, just to get wasted you go to the bar and the bar is where you talk politics and, sure. and jobs uh, would be posted and so it was a very different and it was pretty much male dominated whereas the German beer gardens was family oriented mm. and a lot of food sure so um, when uh, we opened in uh, 1988 we brought back ales porters and stouts in and lagers because Dortmunder and Elliot Ness are both lagers but um, I think that our whole uh, company's efforts in that f on that front really helped bring back um, an appreciation for all the various styles that are out there. Yeah. Now our Christmas ale that's made with ginger, honey, and cinnamon, as that, that's worked for us over the years and continues to grow, but actually we're just standing on the shoulders of the Sumerian brothers and sisters who brewed four to 5,000 years ago. They used all kinds of different uh, products for their beer making, like pomegranate and dates and raisins and different herbs and spices. So actually that the Christmas ale is pretty much a, um, a return to what the Sumerians have done thousands of years ago. Yeah, and you can't talk about Great Lakes really without, or the history of Great Lakes, without talking about Christmas ale. Right. And I mean, when I moved here, people were talking like it was, you know, the, the wine that Jesus, you know, water into wine, and that's the Christmas ale that, that everyone served. And, you know, the first time I had it, I was like, oh, my gosh, like, it's unbelievable. I mean, what has that really meant to, to Great Lakes, your guys' success, and your continued growth? Well, it's, you know, um, nationally, um, the high watermark of beer production is usually in June, July, August, um, the hot summer months. Actually, the high water mark for Great Lakes Brewing is the fourth quarter, yeah. and it's partly because of um, Oktoberfest, which comes out uh, in the autumn, but also the, right after that is the Christmas ale and then Conway. So we probably have um, are known nationally as uh, one of the top seasonal brewers in the country, Yeah, and um, one of the big leaders, of course, in that score is, is the Christmas ale, and I think the success of it has to do with the packaging, of course, sure. because it's the uh, the old train with the bulbs, uh, ornaments on it. Is harkens back to a very uh, simpler, um, warm uh, approach to uh, the holidays. But also, the ginger, honey, and cinnamon. Not one flavor dominates the other. They all work in tandem together nicely. Uh, when we were exploring putting out a Christmas sale, there wasn't a lot out there. Yeah. We did taste a couple from California, and um, one was double I. It was very uh, hoppy and, and a lot of high octane to it, but it didn't taste festive to us, even though it was a well-made beer. And then another one we tried was had too much spruce in it. It was um, didn't resonate with us. So when we decided that's the to Christmas tree ale, that's right. <laughs> that's right. So 
So we decided to uh, tweak our own uh, recipes or formulas. Um, we came up with what we have today, and uh, we don't change the recipe, the formula. Yeah. It stays the same, but a lot of people say, you know, this is this year is the best I've ever had. And, um, well, they are, it is an agricultural product, so bees and honeys, different honeys and ginger and cinnamon, do they slightly change year to year? I, I guess they do. But um, I asked Mark Hunger about that, mm. and... He said, yeah, we don't change it. It's pretty, like, streamlined. What, it, what people need to base it off of is, I mean, first and foremost, the best place, the best Christmas ale is at the brew pub. Right. I mean, it's the freshest, it's the best, I mean. Clean beer lines. Clean beer lines. That's what he said is probably the biggest difference of, like, people going to other places and it's not, like, it's not a good beer line. It's an unclean beer line or... Dirty a, beer glasses. Dirty beer glasses. So all of that can kind of lead into it. Yeah, because, like, you guys aren't changing the recipe every year. Like, what a pain that would be. Well, also, if it ain't broke, why fix it? Exactly. You know? So, yeah. uh, But, you know, every year it's, people look forward to it, and uh, there's a lot of celebrations of families and friends that center around the Christmas sale and... Um, it's, we're, we're pleased that we have such a cult following for the product. Yeah, I would say even bigger than cult. Oh, well. yeah, sure. I think, I think it's a cultural like movement in, in Cleveland. I mean, look at every single brewery in Cleveland, and there's a lot of them. Everyone has a Christmas sale now where 30, 40 years ago, that wasn't, that wasn't even a product. Yeah, back then when we first came out with it, there was um, a, a void across the... the the shelves uh, on Christmas ales, and now Jesus, there must be hundreds of them. Yeah, and but ours still stands out as one that it's the preference of our not just our local audience, but in Chicago and Pittsburgh and Detroit and um, Cincinnati, Columbus. That it's got a, a following outside of Cleveland as well. Sure, and you were talking about it that you know the seasonal beers. I think you guys are really unique in that and. Um, it's, yeah, because in, in the summer, I mean, you guys have Dortmunder all year round, but then, yeah, October, Oktoberfest, or September, Oktoberfest, uh, the, the Christmas sale, the Conways. Was that a deliberate strategy, or did that just kind of come about just because it made sense to have these beers here? But, I mean, Conway, you could probably sell all year round. Oktoberfest, you could sell all year round. Christmas sale, you could probably sell all year round. But you choose that. It, was, that a, was that a necessary strategy that you guys chose, or a deliberate strategy? Oh, for sure. Yeah, we get efforts uh, every year I, I wish this in fact i was just talking to marissa earlier um i, I think more than ever i've we've gotten people saying the conway sire shales should be all year round but um no we think that might lose each product might lose its exclusivity if we yeah had it shared tw 12 months of the year and so we're pleased uh and then there's an excitement when people are, can hardly wait to see that october that's come out um, it would definitely lose its luster you know, I was, uh, there's a Great Lakes Brewing at Concourse C at the airport, and uh, it's, it's not owned by us, but they use our name, provided they only sell our products and wear our uniforms. And oh, I've, I've, I've been there numerous times. Well, it's <laughs> I was out passing through town. I was, I've forgotten where I was headed, but I stopped in and to do some um, quality control. Some, some recon. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I said to the bartender, um, what, so what's anything new? And she said, let me tell you this story. She said a couple of weeks ago, this fellow was coming through town from San Francisco. And he said, um, you know, what's new? And she said, well, the Great Lakes Brewing just introduced their seasonal Christmas ale. And she said, here, I'll pour you a little sample. And he tried and he said, well, this is extraordinary. She goes, yeah, this made with ginger, onion, cinnamon, and you can only get it for eight weeks, blah, blah. Well, he was so pumped, and she said, in fact, you can get six packs to go because you're already through security. And so he was like, no way. And she goes, well, excuse me, I have to pour a beer. So she poured a beer for a guy, and she came back, and he was gone. And she went, she's that surprising because he looked really excited about yeah. the beer. Well, she looked over, his shoulder, over her shoulder, and here he comes walking down the concourse. He went and bought luggage <laughs> to put the beer <laughs> so he could go back to San Francisco with, yeah. a, with a case or whatever. He's, he's lugging a keg on, <laughs> onto the plane, sir. That you're gonna have to check that bag. Uh, that, that's fantastic, though. But yeah, I mean, there's you've just become such an integral part of the fabric of of Cleveland, especially, but really beer drinkers all across um, across the Great Lakes. You know, 
going back to, I mean, this now it's such a success, it would be hard to think about Cleveland beer or Ohio beer uh, and not think that, that, that Great Lakes paved the way for so many people. But, you know, back in the, the early days, you guys were selling beer out of your car, right? Out of your station wagon? That's right, yeah. Our brother-in-law, Mike Grady, um, had an old uh, Chevy station wagon that was long in the tooth and he gave it to us. I, or he charged us a dollar or whatever. But um, we used to hand bottle beer one after another and um, it took us all day to do 30 cases. Now we'll do 30 cases in 15 minutes. 15 seconds. You know? <laughs> yeah. um, but then. So you guys were hand bottling these? Yeah, we wow. have the, the beer tank right here, and then we counter pressure the bottle, and then we'd open this valve and we'd fill it with the beer, and then we'd hand it to this guy, and then Vermont police and I would then cap it. Yeah. And then someone said, that's an inferior way of packaging you really need to get that air out of it so we evolved into where he would counter pressure fill it and it come up and then before we capped it he would take us we'd take a screwdriver and hit it and the bottle would foam then we'd put the cap on <laughs> and it would purge the, the air out yeah and, quite the scientific way oh, of totally. talking about it <laughs> i mean that's handcrafted literally yeah, quite literally handcrafted so is it safe to say that i mean going into this it, how much did you really know about about beer well when Besides we, that you liked it. Well, we, um, when I moved back from Chicago and then teamed up with Dan, um, we're like, okay, now we're not brewers. Um, you know, I had been in bartending and been around uh, beer for years, but uh, never. I tried making it years ago, and it was uh, pretty unsuccessful. But um, I looked under B uh, in the phone book. Um, remember phone books? I do. Yeah, hardly. And, and I looked for B for brewers, and there weren't any. So I did see a, a listing for the brewers and soft drink union. So I called them, and I said, I'm looking for the breweries. And when I was in Cleveland years ago, before I moved to Chicago, there was Lysies, and there was Standard Brewing Company, yeah. and Schmitz. And they said, well, they're all gone. And I went, really? They said, yeah. They, they, um, Schmitz was the last brewery, and they closed its door a couple years ago. But he said that the brewmaster there, the plant manager, Thane Johnson, lives south of Cleveland in Sagamore Hills, so <clears throat> why don't you talk to him? So I called him and I said, Thane, I want to bring back this brewing tradition in Cleveland because when you when you're, uh, closed your doors a few years ago, that ended 150 straight years of brewing in Cleveland. Wow. And we'd like to bring that back, but we'd like to start in a, a restaurant environment, brew pub environment where people come to you, you don't have delivery trucks and extensive marketing campaigns and uh, sales force and he said I'd love to be part of that but he said I'd, I've been brewing for 40 years and I don't want to invest my life savings into something like this because breweries close every other day and restaurants close by the minute but he said you can hire me as a consultant so we hired him as a consultant and we started to go around the United States looking at um, a couple of breweries here and there and we flew to Colorado to buy a brewery that had evolved to a much bigger, more sophisticated brewing system. And uh, Thane and I went and looked at it, and he said, you know, I wouldn't hit a dead dog in the ass with, <laughs> with this equipment. And I said, well, Thane, <laughs> you know, we just flew all the way out here, rent a car and hotels. And I said, you've got to be kidding me. He goes, no, if you want to make beer, you need an excellent product, yeah. excellent equipment. So... We went out and had a few drinks, and then I said, why don't we go to keep going? I mean, we blew this, but let's keep going. So we flew to California, and we saw a couple of breweries, and we're flying back over the Rockies, and he said, you know what? Why don't we build our own brewery? Hmm. I said, well, but Dane, you're the brewmaster. You're not an engineer. And he said, no, but the guy that ran our whole plant, uh, Charlie Price, is also retired. Let's bring him in. So we did. So here we had two gentlemen with 30 or 40 years' experience wow. each yeah. sitting at a table deciding what we were going to do and how we were going to do it. And if it hadn't been for those two gentlemen, who knows if we would have ever gotten it off the ground. Yeah, I mean, that, 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 that's just like a, some people might call that luck. I would call that fate. Okay. You yeah. know, and um, uh, of being able to get those collective minds in together and also agreeing upon it and, and you know, with, with you guys, with the business sense, with the marketing, with the drive, and being able to really bring it up. I mean, I mean, th that just doesn't happen by happenstance. Yeah, and, and, and the fact that they were um, such great uh, brewers and engineers, they're all such great people. And, yeah. Um, they brought to our culture that uh, 
sense of camaraderie and esprit de corps with all the members of the staff, and um, we benefited greatly with their their wisdom. Sure, and, and the first beer that you guys brewed was Dortmunder, correct? But but back in the day, it was Heisman beer, right? It was called the Heisman because it, first it's a German name, and it was a German lager that we were uh, brewing, but also. Uh, Heisman was born around the corner from the brewery, and his dad happened to be a cooper, which means the person that made barrels and presumably a lot of beer barrels because Interesting. Of, of the 30 breweries. Yeah. Wow. So uh, we did that, and then the Downtown Athletic Club of New York sent us a cease and desist, <laughs> desist letter saying we own the right to the name. We give out the Heisman Trophy every year, and uh, we walked. We walked away from the name, and then years later, we found out that that we could have kept the name. Oh, but really? By, by then, the name, the, the horse had left the barn. It would have been too late to rename it Heisman again. Sure. So, but what, what was the the legal moves that that allowed them that, that you could have kept it? <laughs> well, they said um, we own the name, and um, but you know when we were raised in Rocky River, there's a, a company called Ford's uh, Men's Clothing Store. Ford Motor Company couldn't prevent them from using that name. Sure, uh, they could have could have prevent Ford's clothing from using the script Ford name. Yeah, but the name itself was out there. But our attorneys had said no, they they were wrong. You could have kept the name because they own the name as it relates to intercollegiate sports excellence in football, period. Hmm. And so that that was the rationale and how we could have kept the name, but. You know, Dortmunder is um, Dort, Dortmunder. Or we had a contest because one year, because um, uh, people used to butcher the name, and the, the award went to the person who came up with the name, the Don't Minder. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But you know, I, I think Dortmunder has, has, has worked out pretty well for you because 1990, you guys win the, the, what is it, the gold medal at the Great American Brew Festival. Great American Brew Festival. I mean, two years in, you guys just floored to win that. Oh, totally. Yeah. yeah. In fact, we weren't even there. It was it was taking place in Colorado, but we got word um, from a, a voicemail saying that we were just won this award. Thing we really liked about that style was it. it if you try a Dortmunder style, the, the city of Dortmund is somewhere in the middle of the country, so the Munich beers are more malty, the Hamburg beers are more dry, and so Dortmunder was a nice balance. It, Starts off with a nice malt beginning and then a slight dry finish, so it's got that very nice balance to it, and that's why it appealed to so many people. Oh, so that's where the name came from. Right. Interesting. Look at you. And another beer with a with a great history that I don't know a lot of people know is the Conway Irish Ale after your grandfather, correct? Yeah, Patrick Conway. Yeah. yeah. He directed. It's a pretty good name, I'd say. Yeah, it's a great name. <laughs> um, he directed traffic a couple blocks north of the brewery on the corner of. West 25th in, the, in Detroit, and he stood in the middle of the street with a semaphore that would go, stop, go. Um, you still see them in certain parts of Asia to this day. But as people would come by over Christmas, my dad said he, they would hand him whiskey and cigars and chocolates, and he said he would be surrounded with gifts in the middle of the street. And he said he was so beloved, as, uh, and he was part of the fabric of the neighborhood. Yeah. And now you just go through a, a, an intersection, and the lights conduct uh, the flow, but uh, back then there were, he was a person that um, was part of the, the neighborhood and was beloved, and so we thought, if we're going to have an Irish ale, why not uh, Conway's Irish ale, and then have a picture of himself on the, on the label. Yeah, that, that's pretty cool, and yeah, it's still, it's still, it has the go right there where you can see the traffic sign, because you know you, you look at that, for someone who, who doesn't know, you're like, oh, that's kind of a cool label, but no, really knowing the history of that, what do you think that would mean to your grand, grandfather, knowing that, you know, since he was so blue. He's not like the man, by the way. If people are bringing him whiskey and, you know, beer and flowers Cig and chocolate or whatever that is. Cigars. cigars. I mean, you got to be the man to, to <laughs> do that. I mean, I, he must have been, he, knowing that a, a beer, let alone a great Irish ale with a great strong name like Pat Conway, Patrick Conway, um, he must have been, he, he would be Florida, I, I believe. Oh, absolutely. You know, and he, he liked a pint and uh, he liked uh, his whiskey as well, but... Um, he uh, was from County Mayo, Ireland, and like all our relatives, they're uh, all around Clue Bay, which is right facing the Atlantic Ocean. Mm -hmm. And um, our grandmother, you know, if you go to Ireland today and, and you see the beauty there, um, she said, um, but you can't eat beauty. <laughs> 
and you know when you had the, 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 the famine a million people died of starvation I mean it was a horrific time for um, to be in Ireland back in the 1850s 1860s but he and all my other relatives came around the early part of the 20th century like 1910 yeah right? so they weren't part of the first flow of um, immigrants because of the famine and they came right here to Cleveland came right to Cleveland just like the German population came to Cleveland for the industry, and then industry meant income, and then also it meant um, bringing back a lot of their cultural um, uh, attributes, and one of them, like I said earlier, was lager beer. Sure. The Germans, that was a huge part of their culture, and they were outraged when um, Prohibition put an end to the production of beer and, and spirits, because the beer was so important to them as a, as a group. Yeah, and, and not even just as a drinking aspect, but also a culture. Like, cultures were surrounded by beer and the collection of people around beer. Well, beer, breweries used to be as an important part of a city's fabric, like its politics, its sports, its newspapers. They're breweries, and people yeah. were proud of the beer of their community. In fact, Thane uh, said that as a younger brewer, they would travel around the country for conferences, and he always would look forward to trying that local beer. Sure. Uh, but that all pretty much went away when the bigs uh, came in and uh, would undercut uh, local breweries with their pricing and, and with big marketing um, uh, initiatives that little breweries just couldn't keep up with it and fold it. And yeah. that's, that's why Cleveland lost all their breweries. And what was it like for you, you know, started in 1988, now we're in 2024, to, and now not only does every city around here, but there's multiple breweries, multiple brew pubs, um, micro brews, whatever you want to say, um, here in, not just in Cleveland and Northeast Ohio, but Ohio as a whole, but then across, across the nation. And you, what is it like to be able to bring some of that tradition back here to the United States and have it live, live on? Well, it, it's enormously... Uh, um, uh, important to um, the, the city of Cleveland because of the, the taxes that are paid and the jobs that we've created. Over the 36, and we're on our 36th year, we've produced thousands of jobs. And people are coming and going all the time. In fact, uh, we're one of the few places that really have a tr great track record of longevity. Uh, uh, we just awarded um, the Conway's Award at our summit last week to two people who both have uh, uh, worked for us for 30 years each. Mm, wow. That's 60 years. That's amazing. And um, uh, we, um, we uh, applauded their um, longevity with us, but also um, for being such great um, uh, staff that our customer base really appreciates. You know, if you have a brew pub and you have an excellent beer, that's just part of the equation. You've got to yeah. have a strong food concept and you have to have strong service. Yeah. And that could really make or break you. So if you're going to go into the brew pub business and you think it's going to be beer alone, you, you're sorely mistaken. Yeah, there's so many different components, and you guys have been able to capitalize and excel on so many of them. Um, I, I think a lot of it has to do just with, with, with what you're rooted in, and that is, that is Cleveland. We, you, you set up shop in an undesirable neighborhood in Cleveland, have helped build up that neighborhood into the one of the most desirable in, in Northeast Ohio. Um, how important is... Cleveland and the love of Cleveland and the loyalty to Cleveland and the importance of the background of Great Lakes. Oh, it's huge. You know, we um, we've been courted to go into other cities uh, over the years of you know whether it's the Carolinas, uh, Detroit, Chicago, and we've decided to stay um, in Cleveland and have our address in Cleveland and be part of the fabric of of this great Midwest town and. Um, there's so much history in Cleveland that um, most people don't aren't aware of. That uh, what a remarkable um, achievement to to have this city bloom uh, after Lorenzo Carter arrived in 1802. By the 1850s and 1860s, we had 100,000 people. We would be a huge manufacturing center. Uh, we supplied a lot of the weaponry for the war effort of the Civil War because the South isn't going to participate in that. Yeah. And, um, and I think that uh, the canals that, that were built that connected Lake Erie to the Hudson River, which connected to New York City. So Cleveland was then shipping things to, to the New York and then also to Europe. But then there was another canal, the Ohio Erie Canal, to connect to Cleveland to the Ohio River. 
which connected to Cincinnati and St. Louis and New Orleans. So that opened up the interior. And so Cleveland became this great industrial center that was supplying products to a, a lot of different states around the East Coast, primarily. Yeah. Um, and uh, the um, what, what was also important was um, water. We had the Lake Erie, we had uh, Cuyahoga River, and you, you know, most of um, beer is water. And if you don't have a, an easy supply of product, then you're in trouble. In fact, a lot of breweries out west are going to be struggling with um, a lack of water. Sure. Uh, it takes like, you know, four or five, six barrels of water to make a barrel of beer. And so um, one of the initiatives we're working on is trying to work on water conservation because it's so important yeah. for our product and for the culture itself. Yeah, well, that's fantastic. You know, you guys have really, now, you know, back in back in the day, it was, you know, you had a few beers and things like that, and they kept a pretty steady eddy of, you know, stay in the lines of the description of um, the style of beer, where now it's everywhere, you know, you know chocolate beers and all this crap. Um, but I, you guys have really done a good job of keeping tradition, but also pushing a little bit into the, the progression. How, how important has that been over the past, it seems like the past five, six years um, is when that has been really important to be able to, for, for a brewery to experiment a little bit. Well, before I answer that question, um, I wanted to, one other thing I meant when we were just talking about oh, yeah. water. Um, we had uh, the Burning River Fest for years um, that would uh, raise money that, uh, that would be uh, doled out to groups that work in the area of water quality and sustainability. But then COVID hit, and so it's been dark uh, for the last four or five years, and it's too bad because it raised close to a million dollars that these monies were given out to needy uh, organizations in the, in the area of water quality. But um, the other thing that was so important about water for the Cleveland breweries was because when the lake used to freeze over, Cleveland breweries used to harvest all that ice. And when you are making lager beers, you need to age and ferment and age at cooler temperatures. So that ice was a godsend uh, for breweries so that they could harvest it and then put it in subterranean um, uh, areas below the brewery to keep it uh, cool. And then utilize that that uh, that cool uh, temperatures to produce all year round. Uh, whereas if you are from the interior of the of the country and you're away from uh, a lake that where you could harvest all this ice, you had to stop brewing in the summers. Oh. It's just too hot. Yeah, yeah. So they had a competitive advantage. So it was really like a perfect place to come brew beer. Yeah, and so Cleveland breweries had a competitive advantage over other breweries that were in the interior, but then uh, artificial refrigeration came out in the 1870s. Yeah. Cleveland lost that competitive advantage because now all breweries could brew all year round. Yeah, so. freaking technology, I'll tell you what. <laughs> Man, just just ruining it for everyone. Speaking of Burning River Fest, when, when is it coming back? I have never been to a Burning River Fest. Well, it's we. I understand why you guys. Yeah, that, we yeah. we were trying to you know uh, meet payroll, and yeah. we we actually had a philanthropic arm of the country of the company that had to come to an end because we had to take care of our our, our payroll first, yep. and so the Burning River Fest has been shelved again this summer, and so hopefully next summer we can bring it back and, and hit, the, hit our stride again and help the organizations that need those funds. Yeah, love it. Um, Get back to your question then about, what was it about innovation? Yeah, what, how important has it been for you guys to stick with tradition, but while also pushing the boundaries a little bit in, in some beers and some aspects? Well, yeah, the, the whole culture uh, on, in beer land is in upheaval these days, and um, a lot of breweries are consolidating. Some are being purchased by Asian and European brewers. Some are going out of business. Um, and there's an um, uh, enormous amount of innovation going on even beyond beer. There's uh, the, the hottest category right now are India Pale Ales, double mm -hmm. India Pale Ales and um, very strong and very hoppy. But also there's the teas and the seltzers and the cannabis and the THCs and the ready-to-drink products. And so the whole culture is in this upheaval of, you know, what's new and what's next, but sure. it's also exhausting. Yeah, yeah. And not just for brewers and, um, and our own staff that's continually wanting to innovate, 
because we were a little sleepy at the switched on the innovation front and so our, our sales and marketing team have done a good job of now reintroducing some some interesting beers but um, the whole importance of innovation has never been uh, more strong than, than it is today and our staff is saying well okay what is the what is the, what does our customer base want now? Yeah. <laughs> you know, a couple of months ago it was this. Now it's this, and you know what's going to be a flash in the pan? What's got legs and it's going to continue? And no one has a crystal ball. Sure. Yeah. And that. And I mean, because every time you brew a new beer, there's marketing behind it, there's money behind it, there's willpower behind it. Um. And it's yeah. It's, it's trying to be able to see what is going to be the flash in the pan. What's just the hot flavor of the month or whatever it may be. Um, but yeah, you guys have continued to have the traditional ones. And then, yeah, over the past probably five years, have gotten a little bit more uh, more experimental, which I think people love. The vibacious beer that you guys just came out with will land you on your butt. Right. Oh, my right. gosh. It's, yeah. It is delicious. You, you cap it at one. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, it's like nine and a half, ten percent, something like that. Well, actually, it is somewhat reminiscent of the Christmas ale in the sense that it's it's stronger than it tastes. Yes, Definitely. Um, but uh, sneaky strong, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, what, what what can we look forward to as we're wrapping up here? What can we look forward to uh, in the, in the future with, with Gray Lakes? What's kind of your vision for for the company? Well, we have the current brewery in Ohio City and our restaurant in Ohio City, but our brewery was actually the stables of the old Schlather Brewing Company. Yeah, and um, it's a 160 year old building, and it's it's really long in the tooth, and it's hurting our efficiencies, and so. Um, we're looking to um, build a new brewery and with newer equipment and state-of-the-art equipment, but it's an enormously costly undertaking, and you know banks aren't lending money these days, and it's uh, the inflation and interest rates are high. So it's in a lot of ways it's the not the perfect time to be doing this. So sure. um, my brother Dan and myself and our top management team are um, glacially. <laughs> going through the exercise of trying to figure out um, where to do it and how to do it and how to fund it. And, and it's, 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 it's been a very, very time-consuming effort. Uh, sure. But, um, you know, we'd like to stay in the area and be um, part of uh, Cleveland's renaissance. Yeah, I mean, and that's what I was going to ask is, do you envision this continuing to be in Ohio City? Obviously, that area where you are at currently is limited. There's not a lot of land available, but um, how much are you stressing to keep, continue to keep that in the city lines of Cleveland? Do you ever see yourself going to like a Strongsville or Avon? Or well, there's outside um, um, suburban areas that are courting the, the business, and um, and, the, and our own uh, city fathers are, are courting our business as well. So th that exercise is uh, unfolding as we speak. Yeah. And will be interesting to see how it shakes out. But um, our heart is in Cleveland. Um, we love the idea of an outdoor retail experience uh, like the German beer gardens. Uh, you know, um, not that, that that will necessarily bring back archery and bowling and literary clubs and things like that. But just to have an, a couple acres outside uh, would be really a, a godsend for our, our, our company because our banquet manager. Uh, Shannon has said that, boy, we walk away from a lot of business because some people would say, I need this wedding, but it, it has to be outside. Yeah. And, and in our neighborhood in Ohio City, you can't do that. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Um, all right. Two, I, got, I got two quick hitters for you. Maybe I'll come up with a third. But these are the ones that I wrote down. On your deathbed, hopefully that's not for a long, long time, what would, your, what would be your last beer? You only have <laughs> one more beer. See, this is also a different question. This is not the beer that you could only drink for the rest of your life. This is the last beer you would ever have. What if it's uh, a beer that's not in season? That's fine. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a hypothetical question, so you can make hypothetical rules for yourself. Conway's Irish Ale. Conway's Irish is that? Would you say that's your favorite? It is one of my favorites, if not the favorite. It's, it's, um, it's a terrific product. It really is. And it'll be available for the St. Patrick's Day um, we're, we have, uh, we're not just celebrating St. Patrick's Day on Sunday, but uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And we have traditional uh, Celtic music on all three days. And um, uh, Friday is, um, uh, and Saturday and Sunday uh, will be music um, 
well, the Sunday is going to be music up till 2 o'clock because the parade starts at 2. Uh, then we also, and this has been going on for over 20 years, we do a party for St. Coleman Church down the street. Uh, it's a parish from where our, our parents were raised, uh, pretty much all Irish, and they're struggling. And so we donate the beer and the food, and then we charge for it. Yeah. And it raises about ten or 12000 every year for, this, for the church, but it's, um, they're in desperate need of... Uh, many more dollars than that but we can do what we can yeah um and that's it's more of a family gathering so if folks want to help the church and then also uh, have family involved we have the pipers we're going to come and then we also have irish uh, dancers and and then uh, conway's irish ale and then a new beer that we just made um, it's a stout that's got dillisk in it, and dillisk is Irish seaweed, and our grandmother mm. from Ireland used to chew on it, and it was real salty, yeah. and it reminded her of Ireland. That's funny. And so we took the dillisk, and we, uh, Steve Foreman, our pub brewer, uh, made a stout with the dillisk in it, and we'll be serving that on St. Patrick's Day. Similar to like a, 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 what a Guinness would probably be? Uh, a Guinness, but, um, but with uh, more of a salty uh, essence to it. Uh, we, we've done these stouts before with oysters, yeah, with the brine, but this time it's the dillisk, which is the Irish seaweed, and um, paying homage to our grandmother. Love it. Inter- interesting. I'm intrigued on that. That's, that'll be great. Final question. Who in history would you like to have a beer with? Well, uh, a president who was a former brewer, Thomas Jefferson. He was a former brewer. Yeah, and, and George Washington. In fact, on President's Day a couple of years ago, we made uh, one of Tom Jefferson's uh, ales, and then we also made a, um, one of uh, George Washington's beers. How were they? Great. You yeah? Know, they were um, lighter in body, um, but um, uh, I, they, they're, um, they're uh, remarkable. Huh, interesting. The, Tom, the, the President's Day beer coming to Great Lakes very soon. Looking for it. Pat, anything else you want to get off your chest here? No, it's, this has been great. Thank you Appreciate so much for your time. This has really been, a, you're just a wealth of knowledge, um, you know, both with business, but also history, Cleveland history, history of beer. So uh, I always love getting the opportunity to hang out with you and, and pick your brain a little bit. Well, you know, with that COVID-19 and um, it was a rough period there and we're still not recovered completely from it uh, financially but um, I think the resilience of our company is based on the fact that we hire great people yeah and so hats off to our staff and also led by great people as well oh, yeah there it is I'll throw that out there for you Pat Conway <laughs> ladies and gentlemen appreciate you buddy